our shortcomings, our flaws, our deficiencies. And yet you still love us and you call us your people. And you're in the process of doing something amazing in, all, in the lives and the hearts of those that you call your own. And I pray that you would grant us by the power of your Holy Spirit to experience some of that today, that you would feed us with your word, not the word of men, but the word of our king, of the one who gave life, the one who sent his word and his word became flesh and dwelt among us so that we could forever be with and one with him. Father, meet with us this morning, I pray, as your, your people. May you, you grow us into people who, who love Christ with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. People who radiate a passion for him because he is, he is that worthy and that good and that, that majestic and that true and that pure. And that it would be an automatic response that we can't help but spill over words about our Jesus because he is so good. Lord, I thank you for this church family that you have planted here 48 years ago. Lord, may you continue to pour your grace upon it. We pray for a spirit of, of wisdom, of humility, of love, and passion for Christ and each other. And we ask that you would meet with us now through your word, through scripture, by the power of your spirit. Amen. I'm going to start on a historical note this morning by drawing your attention to a, an ancient creed called the Old Roman Creed, um, and I hope not to bore you with history. Actually, I simply want to underscore how important something is that we're going to talk about this morning that I don't think we often um, grasp the enormity of in our contemporary uh, church culture. Um, for those who don't know, a creed um, they served as kind of the anchors of the ancient church. They were summations or distillations of the most vital, crucial truths. Of scripture. That's what you call a grand pause. Vital, crucial doctrines of scripture. If you were to take, for example, the whole of the New Testament and boil it down to what do you have to know, what would you include in those things? Well, that's what a creed is. And they were, it was, it, those things were so important. Creeds were so important because historically it's fairly obvious that people didn't have Bibles back in the first century. Before the 15th century, you had to hand copy, uh, copy of this, which not only meant it took a long period of time, but Bibles were very expensive. So they didn't have Bible in their hands like you and I have. And even if they did have Bibles in their hands, the literacy rate back then was so low, they probably couldn't read it. So in order to transmit the core of the faith, what you had to believe in, kind of the vital organs of Christianity, they reduced it down to these creeds. And what these creeds, if you go back and read them, tell us is the things that were important to our forefathers in the church. The things that they would include, you got to know this, and they would memorize it, and they would recite it in the public assembly so that people would remember these vital truths because they couldn't read for themselves. And I'm going to read for you this old Roman creed, and I want you to notice what they put in this summation. I believe in God Almighty and in Christ Jesus, his only Son, our Lord, who was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. That's God and man coming together. 
who was crucified under Pontius Pilate and buried and, um, and the third day rose from the dead, who ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father, whence he comes to judge the living and the dead and in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Church, the remission of sins, the resurrection of the flesh, the life everlasting. You just look at each one of those lines and you realize that if you pull it out, Christianity itself becomes comes it unravels i mean you have the declaration of one mighty god of jesus the son of god of the holy spirit so there and you have the trinity you have the crucifixion you have the resurrection he rose on the third day his ascension into heaven where he sits as sovereign lord at the right hand of the father and then his his second coming to judge the living and the dead there's a belief in the holy ghost the belief in the remission of sins the belief in the resurrection of, of, of all who believe, that is of the flesh, and the life everlasting. All of this is just vital organ stuff. But you notice, embedded or wedged right into this summary of things that people had to know, is this statement in bold. I bolded it. The church fathers didn't bold it. One of their core beliefs was the holy church. The Holy Church. The Apostles' Creed, which is a reformation or reformulation of of this creed, said the same thing with greater um, amplification. It said that I believe in the Holy Church, the communion of the saints. Or actually it says the Holy Catholic Church. And by Catholic, small c does not mean the Roman Catholic Church, but the universal church. That's what the word Catholicos means, is universal one holy universal church. Nicene Creed, same thing in the fourth century. I believe in the church. So you have this resounding over and over again in, in this, this summation, this distillation of what you had to know, the vital organs of belief, this belief in the holy church. Now, how many of us, if I was to walk around without showing you that, and I was to hand you a microphone and say, can you sum up for me in nine statements the most important beliefs that we as Christians have to have? How many of you would actually include that one there? I don't think most of us would. Because most people in our culture have a very low view of the church. Whereas our forefathers, for generations and for centuries, had a very lofty and high view of the church, which tells me something's wrong. They had a very high view of the church, and it wasn't because the church was more perfect back then than it is now. Over half of the New Testament was written because there were problems in the church, Almost every one of Paul's letters is written because he saw a problem he had to address. In other words, the church was messy then as it is, is now. So it wasn't based upon its imperfection that it's great. I believe one, one of the great reasons why, perhaps the most important reason why they included that, the Holy Church, was because, not because the church was perfect, at least not yet but because of how important the church is to God and what God was going to make of the church in the future. That as you take Ephesians, the letter in which we're studying chapter 4, and you just think of the lofty language that's used of the church, that it is the body of Jesus 
who is the fullness or the fullness of, of him who fills all in all. That's a reference to the church. That's chapter 1, verse 23. In chapter 2, verse 22, we're told that the church is the dwelling place of Almighty God. And that's not future. In that context, it's present. It's the, it's the habitation of God himself. We're told that it's through the church that the Lord is displaying his manifold wisdom to rulers and powers in heavenly places. That's, it's, something's happening through this thing called the church. And of course, chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 25, we learn that the church was, was so beloved of Jesus Christ that he spilt his own blood because he cherished her and wanted to wash her and make her clean. It was important enough to God to send his son. It was important enough to, to the son to give his life for the church. Not because she deserved it, but because he chose to love her that much. For that reason alone, the church is supremely important. Not just that, but as I'm going to take us in the direction this morning, is that Paul is going to insist quite vehemently that Christian growth, growth into, I talked about sequoias last week, the difference between a, a bonsai tree and a sequoia and God his grace is, is, is molding his people forming his people into sequoias to use a phrase in Ephesians chapter 4 to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that's our destiny but it doesn't take place outside the confines of this thing called the church that is it's within the commune within the relational context of the believing community that God grows us and the implication is there is either no growth or very limited growth if one stands outside of this thing called the church. Now, just for sake of clarity, let me provide for you a definition as to what the church is not and what it is in terms of New Testament vocabulary. The church is not, as most of you know, a cathedral or a building in which people meet. Yet that's how we use it in our, our common language. We're going to go to church. We usually think of the building. That is not the church. It's what in, gathers in the church that's the church. Nor is the church the individual Christian, as you will sometimes hear. Someone tell me, Dan, you're the church. Uh, New Testament doesn't use the word that way. I mean, I don't walk into my closet with some bread and cup and take communion all by myself. I, I, I don't go into the closet and get in on a stage in a pulpit and preach to myself. I, I don't go into a closet and operate all the spiritual gifts to help myself grow. Those are all things that the gathered church does. So no, I, I, I am not the church. I am not my own elder. That's church. I am not the church. I'm simply a part of the church. And the church, by definition, has kind of two aspects to it in terms of how it's used in the New Testament. I just want us to be clear about in one sense, the church is, by definition, every believer from all time of every generation. A grand family that extends all the way past to the first believer and all the way forward to the last believer before the consummation. That is the church universal. But the church is also spoken of in its local present tense expression. When believers who follow Jesus gather together to lift up his holy name, partake of the elements of bread and cup, hear the preaching of the word, exercise church discipline on each other, and have some system of authority and accountability, that is gathered the church. 
We today, 1147, are the church gathered. When we leave, we're just a part of the church. When we're gathering, we are the church. And Paul's going to insist that growth happens as we relate to one another in this commune called the church. I'm going to read for you, beginning in verse 1. We're actually going to focus on 2 through 6, but the sentence begins in verse 1, so I'm going to start there. We're going to talk about how growth happens in this context of community or church. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's the command to grow into the grace that has brought us to life. With all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And there's a shift here in verse 4. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Verses 2 through 3 provide the practice for believers to both preserve, promote, and protect the integrity of its oneness as a family. That's 2 and 3. That's our part. And then he lays the foundation of it in verses 4 and 5 and 6, which is God's part. The first part gives us essential ways in which we are to relate to each other in a way that ensures oneness, ensures uh, a unity in which we can grow into those kind of sequoia trees. These are the requirements for relational integrity within the body. Now, the way Paul groups these, it, he gives us three basic instructions. You'll notice he groups humility with gentleness, hence the comma at the end. It, with all humility and gentleness, that's a gr- one category. With patience, which is then elaborated on or defined by bearing with one another in love. That's what patience is, bearing with one another in love. That's category two. And then category three begins in verse three. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Those are kind of the three instructions that he lays upon everyone who's a follower of Jesus. These these are the things that you are to practice by faith in my grace um, to ensure, promote, preserve the unity of the family, that church, the holy Catholic universal church. The first grouping has to do with what I have just summed up here is gentle humility. It's the foundation of all healthy relationship and oneness, and not just in the church, but in family and marriage too. Gentle humility. For sake of clarification, humility is not the same as self-deprecation. We oftentimes think that humility is saying, I'm such a horrible person. Or, if you're like David and you have a gift of playing the piano, that being humble is like, oh, I don't really have a gift of playing the piano. That's self-deprecation. That's not humility. It's actually a form of arrogance and lying. Humility is actually, well, thinking rightly about yourself, but, but I like the way one writer says it. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking of yourself less. That is the center of attention isn't on you. It's on on the needs of others. That's humility. Of being able to sense that there's a need out there. 
um, that brother or sister or someone in the family needs, a, needs something, their well-being is at stake. And so in that humility, which is not putting your own interest first place, but the interest of others does something about it. That, that, that's gentle humility. And where there is that humility to sense needs of others, because your, your vision is not on yourself, but it's on, on Christ and others, um, and a desire to actually help somebody, there's going to be a tactical, strategic way of dealing with them that is inherently gentle, if you care. That's why those two go together. Or, you know, a picture is better than a thousand words. So when I think of this gentle humility, what comes to mind is I think of a, a, a mother of an infant child that is a good mother of an infant child. Now, I will tell you that my least favorite phase in my children's lives was the infant stage. It's the truth. They can't talk to you. They can't play Legos yet. They don't even smile. Pretty much all they do is cry and that other thing. That's it. But the heart of a good mother, in the middle of the night, hears the crying of her baby in the bassinet. What does she do? Her first instinct is not to think, oh, I just need to sleep some more. I think I'll put earplugs in my head. No, her first response is, is the interest of her baby who can't care for itself. And so she gets herself up and then she picks up that baby, not roughly, but gently because she knows she needs to care for that baby's body. And with the humility of seeing the interest of her babies before her own and the gentleness, she picks it up and she cares for it. That's an image of gentle humility. And I believe that is an adequate picture of how we are supposed to treat others whom Jesus loves. With a sense of, I, I, you know, I, I, I know that, that you just had a, a loss in your family and I'm bringing you a meal. Why? Because even though it's going to take a little extra time, I just know that you have a need of it. And you do that. That's, that's how the Lord would have us see each other. And, and, and as we do, it promotes, preserves, and protects the unity of the one family, this thing called gentle humility. Now, one qualification, this does not mean that there's not a time for forceful, blunt, and sometimes even severe language. Every portion of Scripture that we read must be kept in the context of all of the rest of Scripture. That it seems to me that there are times in which a situation or should I say the well-being of another person or group, there needs to be strong language which some might consider to be ungentle. For example, um, Jesus is speaking to Peter, and he says, I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, you're not going to die. And, and Jesus looks at him straight in the eyes, and he says, get behind me, Satan. Something tells me that's a little blunt. Get behind me. He's saying you're being a tool of the devil at this point. That's straightforward language. Or Paul, in the tone with which he writes the, the book of Galatians. I mean, the people of Galatia were in danger of, of leaving the gospel that leads to life or a false gospel that leads to bondage. And he has the, 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 the passion and the severity of words to say, if anyone brings to you a gospel other than the one that I gave you, let him be damned is the word. That's strong language. There's a time and a place for that. But it seems to me it's more the exception than the rule. 
But even then, it's done with a humble spirit that wants the best for the other person. It's not out of a simple vent of frustration or anger. It's, a, it's an anger produced by love that you don't want to see someone you love hurt. Gentle humility. That's one of the ingredients, one of the necessities or requirements. The second one, summed up, enduring patience. The idea of constancy of love and time. He tells them, in order for this to work, in order for this family to experience visible oneness and healthy relationships, there has to be patience and a bearing with one another in love. That bearing with one another in love could also be translated, put up with each other in love. That implies that church experience in this holy church at times is going to be messy. And you and I both know it's going to be messy because every one of us in here in some way, shape, or form are messed up. You put all those messed up people together in a messed up context, and, and there's just messiness. Now, that's easy to say. I think most of us could, if I, if I asked you, hey, raise your hand if you're messed up, I think everybody's like, yeah, that's me. It's a different thing when that messiness is personal and painful. I think all of us can think of somebody, or maybe if you're over 20, you've experienced it yourself, there are times when there's, there's pain. And the first instinct is the instinct of flesh to either fight or flight or to get even or to give up. That's just the human, natural human fallen response to pain or offense. And uh, that's the opposite of what Paul is saying here. Now, quick qualification. Does that, does that mean that there's not a time and place for a person to leave one local expression of the church, one church, and, and attend another I don't think so if there's legitimate reason, and I think if there's every effort made to make that parting one of peace. But generally speaking, where there are offenses and that temptation to fight or flight, Paul would say, you know what, the truly Christian way to ensure and to promote and, and uh, protect the unity of my church is to make sure you stick with each other. You're going to have flaws. We have so many different personalities in this room. Um, we have people who have, they just want stuff done, task-oriented. Other people who are some more relational. Can't we all just get along? And we have different ethnicities in this group and different histories and different ways of looking at things. We have people who are loud and people who are soft and people who are introverts and people who are extroverts. And you put all that together in this thing called the church. It's like, wow, we're going to need something here to keep us all together. And it's what Paul says. It's like enduring patience. I mean, you think about what, Christ did for us in bearing and enduring our flaws to the cross, and he continues to love us despite us. It's one of the, one of the characteristics of sticking it out with somebody. You know, again, a picture tells a thousand words, right? It's one thing to define enduring patience. It's another thing to picture it. I'm not the epitome of, of enduring patience, I'll tell you. Uh, and I, I know that about myself at some level, and that's something that I, I have to make an effort that's not always easy. And I don't know that it's easy for anybody, but I remember one time in particular I failed. There was this five, six-year-old girl, and she was on everybody's last nerve. Like, we're not talking about just kind of a, a sullen, cranky spirit. We're talking meltdown, tantrum, screaming, whining, 
that, you know, that bad part of you that wants to take and lock them in a padded soundproof room and leave them for like five hours? That's the kind of, of, of situation that was going on and everybody knew it. And I had tried to deal with the situation, you know. I think I was in my 20s at the time and I was just, you know, trying to fix this. And finally, I was like, I'm done. And I just walked away. By the way, that's, that's not what Paul says to do, to walk away. But that's, that's what I did. And then I watched with a convicted heart when her great-grandmother, the only one who could stand her, saddles up next to her on a log, you know, comes and sits down next to this meltdown, this complete disaster of drama. And, and this great-grandmother picks up a blade of grass. And I'm over there, you know, frustrated. I'm done. I look, and she takes this blade of grass and puts it between her thumbs. And she blows on it. And it makes this really squealy whistle sound. You ever done that with a blade of grass? This five, six-year-old girl immediately stops crying. She looks over. She's like, I want to do that. Blade of grass. They're sitting there. This great-grandmother teaching her great-granddaughter how to make a stupid whistle. I'm over here watching. And I see a transformation in this five- to six-year-old girl's countenance. Here is a great-grandmother who stayed with her, poured into her, invested in her, something that's minimal, and yet at the same time through that, showing her love. And they began laughing and talking. And at that moment, I'm like, wow, I, I just screwed that up. But that's, a, that's such an example of, of like, First of all, that's Sequoia Christianity right there. Um, that's, that's, that's a big heart. That's a heart that knows what it means to endure with patience. You know, sometimes in order to bring change to a person's life, you don't need a hammer. You just need a flame. A flame can heat metal and bend it. And it's amazing what love can do if it just sticks with it. I think Christians should be known for people who stick with it. For the sake of love and for the sake of the name of Jesus. And when they have that attitude, well, it, it ensures the relational integrity of, of God's people, the, the holy church, so important to the Lord. And then the third one has to do with just eager effort, you know, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There's an eagerness. That's the opposite of hesitation, reluctance, or reticence, which, again, is our natural response you know, this is typically how it plays out, and I'm sure you've seen it. Two brothers that are once close in the Lord, something happens. Maybe something happened to their children. Maybe something happened between them. Something was said, but there's an offense and there's a pain. And instead of just dealing with it, there's this slow cooling effect where there's no more phone calls. There's no more invitations to birthday parties. There's, there's, there's no more sweet fellowship. They, and they both kind of gravitate into their own relational spheres and circles, and they long, no longer connect. And there is this subtle, um, silent division. Sometimes it's not silent. Sometimes it is division, and they pull apart. And they kind of insulate themselves. That's not eager effort. That is, there's a sense of, of passionate willingness to either maintain our oneness or, I think by implication, to also mend it if it's fraying or broken. So rather than allowing that slow isolation to take place, it would be, 
if a person was submitting themselves to the authority of Scripture and love to Christ, should say, okay, Lord, you want me to love my brother, so I'm going to break out of my little insulated cell, and I'm going to call him and say, brother, I know I haven't talked to you in a while, and I'm sorry. I know there's stuff between us. I'd like to talk about it. If there's sin, let's work through it figure it out, and let's confess it. If it's simply a disagreement, let's try and resolve it. If we can't resolve it, let's at least agree to disagree and commit to loving each other in the bond of peace. That's what he's calling us to do, and that, that means that God's people, all of us, this isn't for pastors. This letter was written to you, all of us. It is the responsibility that has been laid, it's incumbent upon us all to actually be eager to maintain that sense of family, of good, solid, reciprocated affection and love and, and mutual trust. That's, that's what we're called to do. Now, does that mean it's going to work every time? Sometimes when you pick up that phone call thinking, I'm going to do the right thing, you get the phone slammed down in your face. But you know what? Your conscience is clear before the Lord. You did what you could to live at peace. It's not always possible, but again, it's what the Lord calls us to, to, to bring and maintain, preserve, promote, and protect the unity of this holy church. These three things are given to us, laid on us as responsibility, uh, as a responsibility. Hopefully, if I've been accurate so far, my phone, if I've been accurate, then you and I both have maybe some decisions to make if we're going to comply and surrender to the leading of God's Spirit expressed through the Scripture. But I want to point out one other thing, and this I'll be brief with, is that the unity of the Holy Church is not something we, by our own effort, achieve. Rather, it's something that has been already achieved by nature of Christ Jesus, which we then go on to realize. I'll explain that in a second if you're like, what did he just say? I told you, verse 2 and 3 gives us our part. That is a gentle humility, enduring patience, and eager effort that can create a context in which we can grow. But then in verse 4, Paul lays out the foundation of the reality of our, our unity. Here he's not talking about something we have to go on and achieve. He's talking about a reality that already exists. He doesn't say there will be one body, and will be one spirit. No, he says there is. This is the way it is right now. This is the reality, the context in which we live. Present tense. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Seven ones. Is it just me or do I hear like one Adam 12? One Adam 12. It's just... I don't know. We'll just keep going. <laughs> huh? This one right here? Is it going to explode? Oh, <laughs> Stupid story. My aunt once told me there was this hot water heater in her basement and there was a button on it. She said, if you push that button, because she knew I was mischievous, the whole house is going to blow up. <laughs> she did. That's my Aunt Jackie. 
And man, I was just looking at that button, and I was just like, <laughs> no, not going to do it. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, gather your thoughts. Gather my thoughts right back here. One, 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 one. Then seven ones. Thank you. I love it when people talk back to me. It just feels good. I'm not alone. I'm not alone. I'm here with people. Just, just so here's, here's, here's the deal, right? Like, um, listen, we already are one body by body church. And all of these take place on the basis of what Christ has done. We already are one body, regardless of whether we feel it, acknowledge it, or see it. We are. That we all, if we're believers, share the same spirit. That's, 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 that's so much deeper and more eternal than DNA or genetics will ever bring us. We share the same eternal spirit within us. We're called to the same destiny, to the presence of God and the new creation with resurrected bodies as the church. In other words, we end up in the same place, one destiny. We have one Lord who ascended on high on the basis of his death and resurrection and now rules as sovereign. We have one faith, which means we believe, at least we should believe, the same gospel, that we're saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. That's it. We believe the same substance of truth. There's one baptism, and I think he's speaking of the induction into the body through spirit baptism or regeneration. That is, we're, 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 we're God's new creation. He's given birth to us, and we're part of his new creation work as the church. And, of course, the work of Christ has also made it possible for him to be our father by way of adoption. Like, this is who we already are. And now the, the practice of it, which we got into in verses 2 and 3, the practices of it are simply an outworking of what we already are. Like, we're going on to be what God has already made true. Now, you say, well, that doesn't really make a big difference to me. Well, so, so again, uh, maybe a, a more human analogy. Uh, our kids fight sometimes. <laughs> yes, they do. My youngest son knows how to push my daughter's buttons, and she knows how to come back. And, and you know, one of the things that my wife both impress upon them when they're in this state is you, you tell them, listen, you guys are family. You're brother and sister. You can't change that. You can't emancipate yourself from it. You can't state your own independence from it. You can't change your genetics. You can't change your DNA. You can't stop being her sister. You can't stop being his brother. You will forever be, long after we die, brothers and sisters. So you might as well learn how to live with each other because it's not going to change. Have you ever said that to your kids? Like, right? You're, what you're telling them is like, and, and, we, and we know this, it's like, hey, listen, we are family. We're going to have to. Uh, it, it's true. Paul's saying, listen, you're already brother and sister. You're going to be with each other for all eternity. Jesus bought all of you. He's made you into one. You might as well live it right now. There's no changing it. All that with the base stuff going on. That's pretty good. And it's just, that's the basis of it. And it's the truth. Listen, you are family. We don't make ourselves family. We are family. And it's simply realizing who God has created us to be. And as we do, we honor the one who has unified us through his blood. That's what he has called us to do. And as we do, we grow. As we focus and find our foundation in what God has already done in all those seven ones, then we begin to grow and we continue to grow in community with each other. 
One final image I, I brought up earlier and I brought up last week, which really fit this week better. Told you this, God is forming sequoias, but um, I think most of you know enough to realize that sequoias, the largest tree on earth, the most massive by volume and the highest, do not grow alone. Their root system's too shallow. And with that kind of mass and volume and height in a storm with a shallow root system, some of the biggest ones only go down 12 feet, which isn't, isn't much at all. They just simply blow over. They don't. That's one of the remarkable things about sequoias. While their root systems are shallow, from what I've read, they can extend out like a, a mature sequoia, extend out sometimes as far as one to four acres. And you can imagine if there are other sequoias around, you have acres and acres of intertwined meshing like a grand net, all connected together. And whereas one sequoia can be uprooted by a wind, acres and acres intertwined together under the earth, you can't blow that over. They... They exist in groves. They grow in groves because of this oneness of connection. We're also told that as they grow high, they create this kind of wind wall. One might be easily knocked over, but the many know. That's, that's, that's us. You, you can't hope to grow um, outside of the community of faith. You grow in the community of faith as you allow the roots of your life to intertwine with other people's in love, in history, experience, affection, fellowship. And there's a rooting that takes place of family. And you grow as you're connected. And you don't get knocked over and picked off if you're connected. So I want to encourage you, if you're a person who's trying to grow in isolation all by yourself, listen. That is about as foreign as the New Testament is the devil living in the new creation. You can't do it. And so maybe you need to, you know, say, Lord, I want to commit my fears to you, and I want, I want the roots of my life to connect to other people in this congregation. I'm going to learn to be more transparent and trusting, and I want to get involved. Maybe that's the big to-do here this morning for you. Or maybe if, if you are one of those sequoias and, and we... We've seen some fractures, um, and it seems to me pretty clear that we need to be gently humble. We need to learn what it means to truly endure in patience, and then also to be eager to do whatever we can by the grace of God to mend those fractures, because we are the Holy Church. We are God's prized possession. We are the bride of Jesus. We are the holy temple of Almighty God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, in these times that we have, I, I pray that you would just root us down deep, root us and connect us to each other. I pray that the areas of fear that oftentimes keep us so distant from each other and so guarded with each other would begin to come down and that this grove that you planted here called Parkway would grow strong not because it's great, but because your grace is great. And you, Lord, can grow amazing things if we keep our eye on you and humbly submit to your word.
So we ask you, Lord, please just continue your work of growth. We pray for mending. We pray for new life. In Christ's name, amen. We turn those turn those lights back down. Turn this on. Um, if if you were here last week, we're going to um, respond much in the same way that we did last week. Tim, can you guys bring those these lights down? I don't know if you can be on us right now. Um, and just just allow this time for us as a body to respond to the word that's been given. Um, and what that might look like for you is staying right where you are and just quietly reflecting on the word that's been shared. Um, it might mean you want to pray with someone. Maybe there's something in particular that you heard that you know in your heart you're struggling with. Maybe you are um, one of the wounded. Um, maybe you're a wounder and you need to come and just as an act of grace have a brother or a sister here at the front. I only see brothers. I bet you could find a sister to pray with you. Um, there they are. See? Asking you shall receive. Um, but let's just respond to the word together. I'm going to ask if you would. Um, I'm not going to ask you to do anything. You can sit. You can stand. Come pray. Respond to the word of God. And let's spend these, these next few moments doing just that.
The church is one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride with his own blood he bought her and for her life he died from every nation yet one o'er all the earth her charter of salvation one Lord one faith one birth one holy name she blesses partakes one holy food and to one hope she presses with every grace indeed church would you go ahead and stand and as we just continue to respond come and pray if you feel that Stay seated if you need, kneel, bow, whatever you need to do. One foundation, one foundation, one foundation, Jesus Christ our Toil and tribulation and tears. 